Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. been a few weeks. I do apologize for the delay in new episodes. I will be full disclosure that my surgery recovery has kept me distracted. And this is not at all a complaint because trust me, I know how hard it is on you know the job market right now. But my full-time career as a recruiter has been extremely busy, which I'm so grateful for. Last summer in the midst of the pandemic, it was scarily quiet and fortunately it seems that at least the type of types of roles that we source for um, are in high demand right now so I have been kind of consistently working 10 to 12 hour days which again I'm not complaining because I am so grateful to have employment right now and have um, you know as a salesperson ultimately have have a lot of opportunities to earn commissions so that has been keeping me really busy. It's really hard to, at the end of a long day like that, devote more time to research. Um, although I will say I'm very excited about the case today. It is something that I've been thinking about for a while, and I recently finally received this book, my main source, um, that I'll get into further in a bit. But um, it was printed in 93. I don't know that it's still in print, so I got it from a thrift store in Dallas via Amazon, and I have been just devouring it the last um, few days just as an e- extra source material. But uh, I'm very excited about it, and again, I'm sorry for the delays. Life happens. My hope is is that I can get back to a more regular um, schedule and you know, when people reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I'm w- waiting for another episode that makes me feel good because sometimes, you know, there's so much there's so much on the market right now to consume in terms of content, especially when it comes to podcasts. I mean, even the niche that I've kind of been involved in is so overly saturated. So, you know, even if it's my friend or my mom being like, hey, you know, what's going on? Or do you have a, no- a new episode in the works? Like, that makes me feel good. So, you know, feel free to keep kind of sharing that with me because it's the thing that motivates me the most, especially when my brain's a little bit fried from other things and, you know, just daily life and work and whatnot. It definitely keeps me inspired. So that being said, um, quick crime-related thing, but not really having to do with this case that has particularly disturbed me is the whole um, Lady Gaga and her dog walker being shot and her three French bulldogs um being well two of them were stolen one of course um miss asia that she formerly shared with her fiance taylor kinney um was recovered thankfully but you know this hits close to home i have a french bulldog and i have since learned from hearing about this awful news story that apparently this is a thing apparently people are attacking you know french bulldog owners or their walkers at you know night during the day and basically stealing them. There was another case in San Francisco recently of a young lady that probably around my age, I think, and she got beaten up really badly. I mean, her her face, she took a photo of it and published it, was just swollen and, you know, her she had a fat lip. I mean, it's so disturbing. And then her little puppy, Chloe, who I think was around seven months old, was taken and still has not been recovered. So, really, really disturbing. I mean, I, I think that most people are kind of outraged by it. I mean, Lady Gaga's dog walker got shot four times. I mean, it's one thing to steal a dog, which is beyond horrific and truly my worst nightmare, but to assault and basically attempt murder of people that are, you know, caring for these puppies or dogs. It's just so disturbing to me. It's one of those things that makes me even a little bit more concerned about my surroundings. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being aware of what's going on around you, but it has made me realize that perhaps with a French bulldog, I mean, I could be a target for people. Again, I'd like to think that I'm being overly cautious, but it's just one of those things that, you know, 
has been bothering me and I think it's just awful and I feel horrible for Lady Gaga. Apparently, LAPD is really upset that she offered a $500,000 reward, um, no questions asked, return policy for her puppies. I get that. I mean, those are her babies, right? But of course, you know, the LAPD detective in charge, I think, is, has said that, well, that's going to set a precedence. Now other celebrity dogs are going to be um, stolen and expect a huge ransom and not have any sort of prosecution. So I do get both sides, but I just feel horrible for her. And, you know, anyone out there that has a French bulldog, please be careful. You know, I, I carry pepper spray around with me. I mean, being a true crime person, I think it's uh, it's it's essential, but sometimes I wonder is it is it more of a peace of mind thing for me because I don't know how that would match up to, you know, a bunch of men beating the crap out of you or shooting you, right? But I guess the biggest thing um, that I was thinking about that I could do to be more aware is just especially if it's you know in the evening or it's a little less crowded at a certain time of day is perhaps just you know not put in headphones, um, don't listen to other podcasts, even this one. <laughs> You know, just make sure you're hyper aware of your surroundings and perhaps if you're able to have a buddy to go out with um, to walk because it seems like these attacks typically happen when the person is on their own with the dog. So anyway, awful story. Hope there is a more positive resolution. And for people out there that are considering this type of crime, I mean, you are of the worst type of category. Although I will say this crime that I'm covering, it's going to be at least a two-parter. Um these people, oh my God, you guys are going to pass out. Um, so I guess I should at this point announce what I'm covering today and what I am going to be covering is the Sunset Strip Killers. And they are Carol M. Bundy and Doug Clark. They became collectively known as the Sunset Strip Killers after being convicted of a series of murders in Los Angeles during the late spring and early summer of 1980. And the victims were either young sex workers or runaways. And Carol also murdered her landlord and lover, Jack Murray. And as I mentioned, one of the books that I've been obsessively reading and has, I would say, probably been one of the best true crime books that I've personally ever read is called The Sunset Murders by Louise Farr. The true story of a woman who would do anything for love and the lover who taught her to kill. And as I said, this was, I believe, printed in 93, and the copy has um, quotes and uh, endorsements by, like, Anne Rule, who wrote Stranger Beside Me about her experience with Ted Bundy. Um, but I think it's really, really well-researched. I think that Louise Farr is a really strong writer, and it's a compelling story. Um, I'm not going to lie. Like I said, these two people, Carol Bundy and Doug Clark, are amongst the worst. You'll find that Carol has elements about her that are sympathetic. I mean, she really did not have much of a chance, but um, the callousness and her sort of assertions later on after she was apprehended that she would do it all over again makes her a little bit less sympathetic, in my opinion. Um, Doug Clark is the giantest piece of garbage you could ever imagine. So we will get into it. That was my main source. I used another um, a few other documentaries, including a Born to Kill one, which is really compelling. There's also an investigation discovery documentary or show rather episode about these two um, from their Wicked Attraction series, which, you know, is is OK. It's not that it's not the highest quality. Born to Kill is a little bit better. Um, and then there was an article about called Addicted to Love, the Sunset Strip Murders by Fiona Steele. But honestly, I think she pulls a lot of direct um information from Louise Farr's book, which is fine. And then there was another article called Love and Death, The Sunset Trip Strip Killers by Catherine Ramsland. And she's in a lot of documentaries. Like she's often a talking head for, you know, um, the psychological profiles of these killers. So really interesting lady. And, you know, I don't really know a ton about her, but she does pop up quite a bit. And I think her um, opinions are quite interesting. And it's cool to see a lady that is involved in, um, you know, basically forensic criminal profiling because it does seem to have been uh, a very heavily male-oriented career profession. But anyway, let's get into it. Carol Mary Bundy was born Carol Mary Peters on August 26, 1942, the second child of Charles and Gladys Peters. Despite a horrific childhood at the hands of her abusive parents, Carol insisted on a more idealized version, as she did with all things, and that is very true in, t in terms of her relationships later on in life, especially when it comes to men. 
She put a gloss on everything and would make excuses for everybody. Her later failing eyesight was almost symbolic for her emotional blindness and inability to comprehend reality. She claimed she had a happy childhood and could only recall good memories of joyful Christmas times and when her dad played Tooth Fairy, making footprints with a doll's muddy feet. Her memories of her mother were no less idealistic. She initially portrayed her as a glamorous and beautiful woman who exuded a magic that Carol always wished she'd shared. In truth, she had a horrible life. Both of her parents were alcoholics, his father moved his family from town to town in his work as a movie theater troubleshooter, and her mother was a hairdresser who at one time had been a stand-in for tap-dancing star Ruby Keeler. Although a cute baby, Carol was an unattractive and awkward child, unable to live up to her mother's expectations. And for some unknown reason to Carol, at the age of eight, Gladys cut her off completely. She came home from school one day to find herself locked out of the house. Despite her tears and pleas to be allowed in, Gladys told her to go away because she wasn't her little girl. It had only been the intervention of her father that changed Gladys's mind. Carol was allowed to come home, but from that day onwards, Carol's mother treated her as if she didn't exist. Can you imagine being an eight-year-old child and your mom's just like, nope, I'm done with you. That has to be horrific for your psyche. Charles would not allow Gladys to hit the children because she would go berserk, thrashing them with a belt relentlessly until someone dragged her off them. Carol's younger sister, Vicky, recalled an incident when Gladys had beaten Carol severely around the face and body with a belt while Carol sat in a chair reading a comic book, and when it was over, she smiled and got up and walked away. Despite her father's need to control his children with physical abuse, Carol could not face the idea that her father had not been loving toward her. She would convince herself that her father's beatings were never harsh, but were always meted out in fair proportion to the seriousness of the offense. In fact, in the book uh, by Louise Farr, she distinguishes at some point a difference between whipping and beating. Apparently whipping is something that happens with a, a paddle and is not quite as serious, but he never beat her, which meant he never um, punched her or lashed out in a more physically violent way. Quite frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, a beating's a beating regardless of the tool, but that's another example where Carol was trying to justify her father's actions and make a distinction where there really was none. Carol described her mother's death from a heart attack dramatically. Her mother had suddenly complained of feeling unwell when she was cleaning the floors and told Carol to call her father from work. He took Gladys to the hospital and returned many hours later alone. When he walked in the door, he told Carol that her mother was dead. Carol screamed and ran to him. Her father held her tightly as they wept together. On the night of her mother's death, her father, instead of comforting Carol as she preferred to remember, had actually told his young daughters that they would have to take their mother's place in his bed. Although they were not sure why, they were both too scared to go. They played a game to decide who would go. Vicky lost and at the age of 11 was introduced to oral sex. Later, it was Carol's turn. Despite her tears and protests, her father sexually abused his daughter. And according to Vicky, their father's sexual abuse would continue until he remarried eight months later. Carol would recall the first and last time as being the only occurrences. She would always remember her father as being a good man who had loved her. She could find nothing bad to say about the man who had beaten and abused her. Soon after her father began molesting her, Carol began running naked through the streets at night. By the time she was 15, she had learned the power of sex and the appeal of her large breasts. Through promiscuity with high school boys and the school bus driver, ew. Although not sexually satisfying to herself, Carol found she could get attention she craved, if only for a moment. After he remarried, Charles began to beat Carol more regularly, humiliating her constantly and telling her that she was fat and stupid. Only a few months after the marriage, Carol came home to an empty house. The cat was dead and her father's shotgun case lay on the blood-stained living room floor. When her father returned, he told Carol that he wanted to kill the whole family, starting with his wife, but she had wrested the gun from him. Carol and Vicky were sent to foster homes, then to their grandmother in Michigan. In less than a year, their father reclaimed them from an uncle in Indiana and took them back to California. At 17, to get away from her father, Carol married a 56-year-old man, Leonard, but soon left him because he was a drunkard and he had wanted her to prostitute herself. 
Soon after, she met Richard Geis, a 32-year-old writer of pornography and science fiction. He had found her to be a convenient companion with a pathetic eagerness to please. Believing her to be an intelligent and witty woman, which she actually was, I think later on I'll talk about her IQ once she was apprehended and it was um, of superior intelligence range, Geis encouraged her to pursue her writing talents. She wrote a short story, which was published in a mainstream magazine. She began to write a novel, but stopped after only writing 12 pages. She put together one issue of a science fiction fan magazine. Then she took up cartooning, but despite having talent, she gave it all up. In 1962, Carol's father hung himself. Geist believed that Carol took the responsibility for both her father's death and his sexual abuse of her. By this time, Carol's pattern of martyrdom in the face of abuse from others was well set. Carol went through a period where she fluctuated between men and women. If a woman hurt her, she would turn to a man, then when he hurt her, she would turn to a woman. In time, she tired of this game and returned to her relationship with Geis. They moved to Oregon and were living together when Geis found out that she was sometimes sleeping with other men for money. Although Geis recognized that Carol was in need of help, he did not urge her to seek counseling. A grave mistake later. Instead, he paid for her to go to nursing school on the condition that she maintained good grades. She attended college in Santa Monica, where they were living at the time. She was judge class valedictorian and qualified in 1968. It looked like Carol would sort her problems out and get on with her life finally. Dick and Carol would maintain their friendship for many years. Carol's marriage to Grant Bundy, also a nurse, had been very, fairly stable until after their first son Chris was born. From that time on, the relationship became steadily worse. Carol claimed that he belittled her and shoved her around, which escalated to regular beatings. At one stage, she left Grant to have a lesbian affair, but came back after squandering thousands of dollars on her lover, again another pattern that she continues throughout her life. When Carol's eyesight, which had never been good, deteriorated further, the friction between the couple became worse. Grant became more violent as the prospect of looking after their two boys and a blind Carol who could no longer work became a reality. Finally, in January 1979, Carol fled with her children to a shelter for battered women. Two weeks later, she found an apartment in Valerio Gardens in Van Nuys, a suburb in the San Fernando Valley, where she moved with nine-year-old Chris and five-year-old Jeff, whose nickname was Spike. When Jeanette and John Murray, nicknamed Jack, the managers of Valerio Gardens, first met Carol Bundy, she was 36 years old, overweight, with crop brown hair and very thick glasses. Although Jeanette had been aware of her husband's philandering since the early days of their marriage, she knew that he liked blondes with long legs. Carol Bundy was definitely not Jack's type. She was not concerned at the number of times Carol initially called upon Jack to fix things in her apartment nor did she worry when her husband took Carol to her doctor's appointments in the Social Security office. After all, Carol was just a single mother down on her luck. Jack Murray had been born in Australia and had come to America to make it as a singer. Although he had great potential, with an excellent voice and good looks, his arrogance and self-importance tended to destroy every opportunity that came his way. He and Jeanette had married after meeting at a telethon in 1974, just 10 days after they met. Shortly after their first anniversary, their first child, Jessica, was born, followed two years later by their son, Brian. In Carol, Jack had found a new audience for his old stories. As he repaired the wardrobe doors, he told Carol romantic tales of his time in the Australian Army and his service in Vietnam. There's a quote in the Sunset Murders book by Louise Farr where it talks a little bit about Jack's um, yarn spinning and to his friend Robbie Robertson when he told him of the war stories, and it gives you a sense of really what kind of person Jack was. The first time Robbie heard his war stories, Jack had fought in Vietnam in the Australian Army. The second time around, he had been in the Special Forces. The third time Vietnam came up, Jack said he had been involved in undercover operations for the CIA, assassinations, that kind of thing. Robbie bit his tongue. And the thing is, is that, you know, Jack, you'll find, as I mentioned up top, he ends up being murdered by Carol, but he is not a very sympathetic character. Granted, no one deserves to be murdered, but honestly, he just sounds like a huge a-hole. I mean, he is a serial cheater on his wife, um, as you'll find he becomes with uh, Carol, but he just 
has the biggest ego ever. And apparently he squandered his talent um, and stopped pursuing his professional singing career in order to basically be like a little emperor of the Valerio Gardens complex, which Robbie Robertson would later say was a huge um, waste of his talents. But again, it was more important to Jack to feel like he was the boss and in charge. And in fact, apparently the tenants called him Mr. Jack and he really liked that. Carol, almost blind and alone, was flattered that this attractive man would want to waste his time talking to her. On his next visit, Carol told him of her ex-husband's ill treatment of her and made a show of trying to put on a brave front about her blindness. Jack showed her the sympathy she had wanted and was soon offering to help her out. He even suggested that she seek a second opinion about her eyesight. By Jack's third visit, she had made certain to have his supply of his favorite beer in the fridge, and they quickly fell into bed and Carol Bundy fell in love. Within a very short time, Carol's crush on Jack was bordering on obsession. She would follow him around all day as he worked around the complex. If he were in the office, she would be there. As soon as she heard his van turn into the driveway, the phone calls would begin with requests for Jack's assistance with a million and one jobs that needed doing. Often, he would call Carol from an empty apartment. She would walk down the driveway, white cane in hand, and meet him. Within minutes, they'd be in bed. Sometimes, when Jack took her to the doctors, they would make love in the back of the van. Despite the fact that making love usually meant giving Jack pleasure with oral sex and rarely satisfying her, she still believed that he cared for her. As the months went by, Carol became more and more infatuated with Jack, and she had never been happier. In this euphoric state of mind, Carol spent many hours fantasizing about the wonderful life that she and Jack would lead. She even imagined having a child with him, but in reality, she'd had a tubal ligation after Spike's birth. Carol was convinced that Jack must love her. If it hadn't been for him, she would not have known that she was entitled to disability benefits and a housekeeper. And it was because of Jack that she did seek a second opinion about her eyes and found that her eyesight could be surgically restored and was in fact just an issue of cataracts. Jack was looking after her, and she was convinced that they shared an intimacy that Jack and Jeanette had never enjoyed. Carol believed him when he told her that it would be a couple of years before he would leave Jeanette. She understood when he asked her to be more discreet and not follow him around or call him. She looked forward to the times he would call her to arrange for sex in the back of the van. Carol was happy to loan him money occasionally. After all, he had done so much for her, and it gave her a hold on him. How could he leave her when he owed her money? Carol had to ignore the negative realities of her relationship with Jack, or she'd be forced to take action. Then she would be abandoned and alone. Anything was better than that. In October, Carol had her second eye operation. Being able to see again made Carol realize that her affair with Jack hadn't made her as beautiful and glowing as she felt. She was still fat and ugly. Jack, on the other hand, was handsome and charismatic. Any woman would envy her in having such a man. During this time, while still receiving her regular disability payments, the settlement of $25,000 for the sale of her house that she shared with Grant, her ex-husband, came through. She felt rich and embarked on a huge spending spree. And apparently this was an issue in the past. Um, when she was married with married to Grant, she spent $700 in the you know mid to late 70s on Christmas gifts for her kids, so much so that there was still a bunch of toys and um, wrapped presents left under the tree because the kids just got bored of opening gifts. And Grant actually asked for her cards and he cut them up in front of her. So she clearly had a spending problem. She spent $4,000 on new furniture and appliances, bought new clothes, and spent a fortune on beauty treatments and visits to the hairdresser. She also bought gifts for Jack, including a VCR and a new desk for his office. In an attempt to further tie herself to Jack, she did something that I would recommend never doing ever. She opened a joint safety deposit box with him in which she deposited $13,000. In November, Jack told her that Jeanette had cancer and he couldn't possibly leave her until all the doctor's bills had been paid, so Carol gladly gave him $10,000. Just before Christmas, Carol, desperate to have some romantic time alone with Jack, organized for them to spend a weekend in Vegas. She told him that it was a reward for all the help he had given her. Things did not go as planned. They checked into the Continental Tower Hotel and watched a semi-nude dance show together. 
Then Jack's mood suddenly became sour, and he left her alone the entire weekend and just gambled. They did not get back together until it was time to catch their plane home. Can you imagine how offensive that would be if, like, you bought a trip for, you know, your lover, and he just ditches you the entire time? But this is how pathetically low self-esteem Carol had. After Jack dropped her off, she walked the rest of the way home. Later, a very angry Jeanette was at her door to return her blue suitcase, which she had left in Jack's van. Initially, she told Jeanette that Jack had taken her to get a cyst removed, but in an attempt to bring her affair with Jack out into the open, hoping that it would force Jack to leave home, she broached the subject of Jeanette's cancer. She was shocked when Jeanette told her that she had never had cancer. And when she confronted Jack, he admitted that he'd used the money to pay off his van. She was furious but quickly appeased when he assured her that he still intended to leave Jeanette, just not yet. Oh, Carol. I mean, Carol. So bad. Just, I mean, but she's beyond help, honestly, at this point. I mean, she will literally believe what any man tells her. And although nothing had changed by Christmas, Carol still held hope for her and Jack. She continued buying gifts for him and his children. He promised to spend some time with her on Christmas Day, and she awaited all day for him to appear, but when she saw him drive in his van, she decided to take action. She went over to Jeanette and offered her $1,500 if she would leave him. Jeanette told her that she would agree if that was what Jack wanted. Carol went back home and anxiously waited for Jack to return, and when he did, Jeanette told him of Carol's offer. Carol stood in the driveway anticipating a happy result, and instead, Jack screamed at her to stay out of his life. There was no way she would come between him and his family. Three days later, Carol remained unrelenting in her pursuit of Jack. She dressed up to go to the Little Nashville Club, a favorite haunt of Jack's where he often performed, in the hope that he would tell her that he hadn't met what he said to her and he was just pretending for Jeanette's benefit only. But when she arrived, she found Jeanette and Jack together, dancing happily. Her fantasy of marriage to Jack disappeared before her eyes. Her depression sank to even greater depths, but that was soon to change when she saw a handsome blonde man smiling at her from the other side of the room. When she saw that he was the only other person there that was overdressed like herself, Carol read it as a sign that they were meant for each other. He was a perfect gentleman with a cultured voice. During the course of the evening, he made no sexual advances toward her and treated her like a lady. And after taking her to another bar for more dancing, he left her with a promise that he would call her. Carol had never before met anyone as charming as Douglas Clark, and she could not wait to see him again. Doug Clark had been born Daniel Clark in 1948 in Pennsylvania, where his father Franklin was stationed in the Navy. He was the third son of five children. In the third grade, he decided that he wanted to be called Doug instead of Daniel. The family moved regularly from Pennsylvania to Seattle, Berkeley, and Japan. In 1958, Franklin had retired from the Navy as a lieutenant commander. In 1959, he moved with his wife Blanche and their five children, Frank Jr., Carol Ann, Doug, and John Ronlin, to the Marshall Islands, where he took up a civilian position running the supply department for the Transport Company of Texas. Blanche worked as a radio controller. They spent two years living in the Marshall Islands, living a life of colonial privilege, in a housing estate that was built specifically for the many American families who worked on the atoll. When they returned to America, they lived in Berkeley for a short time before moving to India. The Clarks lived in a manor reserved only for the very wealthy back in America, with a number of servants who would dutifully wait on the children and parents alike. Other Americans living in the area described the Clark family as pleasant people, but kept to themselves. As for Doug, none could remember any startling behavioral problems, although they had found that if Doug was ever in trouble for any of the usual childhood pranks, his father would defend him aggressively, refusing to acknowledge his son's responsibility for his behavior. Doug apparently went relatively unsupervised as he grew up. Later, both Walter and Doug were sent to Ecolot, the international school in Geneva, attended by the children of UN diplomats, international celebrities, and European and Middle Eastern royalty. Unlike his brother Walt, who was popular and outgoing, Doug was considered sullen and arrogant and made very few friends. And despite being clever, he did not do well with his studies as he couldn't be bothered to do the work or complete assignments. He also claimed that he had developed his preference for kinky sex and sadomasochism while living in Geneva. 
Doug would brag to his classmates of outrageous sexual exploits with the town girls, whether they wanted to hear it or not. Despite the fact that Doug's parents had been called to the school on a number of occasions because of his bad behavior, including drunkenness, the theft of a bicycle, and writing of an erotic letter to a female teacher, his subsequent expulsion, his parents would claim that later Doug never showed any signs of behavioral problems as a child. Apparently, though, he would be caught by his mother wearing his mother or sister's underwear. So, not, not really sure what sort of uh, sand pit his parents' heads are in, but I think there's a lot of behavioral problems here. His brother Walt would disagree. Thank God somebody is rational in this family. He would claim that Doug would always lie to his parents and get away with it. He would also claim that while in Geneva, Doug would interfere in every single relationship he formed with girls. He wasn't sure what he said to them, but they would always refuse to see Walt again after Doug had talked with them. After his expulsion, 16-year-old Doug was sent to Culver Military Academy in Indiana. Frank Jr. and Carol Ann had already left home by this time, and Walt was sent to a boarding school in Arizona. John Ronlin joined him there later. Doug's parents continued to move around the world, first to Venezuela, then Perth, Western Australia. Although intelligent, Doug was happy to scrape through his schooling with minimal effort. He was involved in a number of sports and played saxophone in the dance band. In the three years that he attended the academy, Doug did not have any close friends, and instead he hung around with a bunch of kids that shared Doug's disdain for authority and had a distinct don't-give-a-damn attitude. He would often brag about his family's wealth, claiming his father was a millionaire, as well as his sexual exploits oblivious to his friends' annoyance and boredom. The fact that most of his classmates refused to mix with him and would often avoid contact with him altogether did not seem to bother Doug. Doug's behavior and attitude led to many meetings with the school therapist, Colonel Gleason. Despite the fact that Gleason had written many letters informing the Clarks of their son's bad conduct, they showed no concern. In the time he was there, he received only one visit from his mother, and the only time his father visited was when Doug was away on holiday. And like much teenage boys, Doug and his classmates were obsessed with teenage girls and the fantasy of sex, but for Doug, it was much more than a fantasy. He would often bring a girl to his room where he would record their moans and groans as he had sex with them. He would often bring a girl to his room where he would record their moans and groans as he had sex with them. He would then replay the tapes to his classmates. At 17, Doug claimed to have met the love of his life. Bobby was 14 when they met at a Culver dance where Clark had taken her away from another boy who was bothering her. Despite his claims he'd been in love with her, he would take photos of them having sex and then pass them around the school, enjoying the notoriety they brought him. And that is a huge indicator. He thinks he's in love with this person, and yet that's how he treats her. This is a person that's a complete psycho -socio psychopath, sociopath, has no regard for humanity and emotions. In 1967, at the age of 19, Doug graduated from Culver and went to live with his parents, who are now retired and living in Yosemite. When he was drafted, he enlisted in the Air Force and Radio Intelligence to ensure that he would not end up in the front line in the Vietnam War. And this is interesting because often throughout the book that Louise Farr wrote, Detective Leroy Orozco, who, is, um, who was in charge of the case, but also a lot of the other policemen and detectives that interviewed him, often felt that Doug was a complete coward. And this is, to me, a huge indicator of that. He would first go to Texas and then Anchorage, where he, would been given, where he was given the job of decoding Russian messages. The military discipline in Acreage reminded him of Culver, and he resented his senior officer's corrections, but the nightlife made up for it. He spent most of the time in the many dancer bars where he would nurture his ego as he left at night with one of the dancers hanging on his arms. Before his term was up, Doug left the Air Force with an honorable discharge, a National Defense Service Medal, and his benefits intact. What the events were that led up to this are unknown, as Doug's story is different every time he tells it, and the Air Force won't reveal anything. Doug claims that he had been a witness to the murder of a black man by a white man and had fled when he was called in for questioning. With over $5,000, Doug planned to drive from Alaska to the Mexican border, but stopped when he got to Van Nuys, where he moved in with his sister Carol Ann, who was living with an abusive husband. At 24, he met and later married 27-year-old Beverly in a North Hollywood bar. Beverly, blonde and heavy, saw herself as fat and ugly, but felt that Doug, with his big dreams and ambitions, would always try to build her up. They bought a car upholstery business, which Doug ran while Beverly had a job and did the books on the weekends. 
Doug insisted that he was the one with the intelligence, not her, and refused to listen to any advice she gave about the business. Whenever they would begin to get ahead, Doug would quickly lose it either by reinvesting in the business or his gambling debts. During the 70s, the business began to falter, so they sold it for only a few thousand dollars. To pay off debts, Doug worked in a gas station and as a security guard before he began buying goods at auctions to resell at swap meets. Beverly had the job of loading and unloading the truck because, in Doug's opinion, he was a better salesman than she was, and apparently she was strong enough to do that by herself. And although Beverly could not say exactly what went wrong in their marriage, she did say that Doug was lazy. She would not consider the fact that he liked to wear her underwear as any more unusual than his desire to try wife-swapping or three-way sex. As Beverly gained more weight during their marriage, Doug spent less and less time at home, preferring to go to bars. According to Carol Ann, his sister, Doug drank heavily and would become over-anxious and angry when drunk. Beverly would deny this, even though she had persuaded Doug to join Alcoholics Anonymous as a condition of them staying together. And he stayed away from alcohol for two years. Doug was ambitious, but would not commit himself to the work that was required to achieve the success he longed for. It had been Beverly's suggestion that Doug apply to work for the city as a steam plant trainee. He agreed and actually completed the training. And in 1967, four years after they were married, Doug and Beverly separated and later divorced, although they did remain close friends, surprisingly. In 1979, Doug began working at the Jurgens factory. His duties as stationary engineer required him to tend to the large boiler. While not a job befitting his level of education, he enjoyed the sense of power that controlling the three-story structure gave him. And he had actually been lucky to get this job, as his work record from his first job after his training was completed was not impressive. He's that type that made excuses all the time of how he couldn't get to work because he'd been robbed or, or his car needed to be fixed or somebody in his family had to go to the hospital. I mean, he is like the king of excuses not to go to work. Somehow he managed to escape being sacked when in 1975 the manager had found Doug to be a disruptive influence and wanted him out. But he was still there when he applied for the job at Jurgens. In February 1980, Doug set fire to his car outside the Jurgens factory while he was working the night shift in order to claim the insurance. He later bragged to Carol that the real reason was to destroy evidence. By the time he met Carol, he had developed quite a talent for insinuating himself into the lives of heavy, unattractive women who would willingly give him free rent, food, and money in return for the attention he gave them. When the women demanded more in return, he would quickly leave them and move on to the next lonely woman. So a true con man. Carol had been correct in her expectation that she would see Doug Clark again. It had only been a couple of days since their first meeting when he called her at home. She was delighted, and she did not protest when he insisted on joining her and the boys for dinner, even though she normally preferred not to let the, no the boys know about her male friends. Despite her misgivings, the boys enjoyed having a man in the house, so much so that both Chris and Spike happily sat on Doug's lap or cuddle after they'd finished playing. As Doug tucked them into bed, he told Chris and Spike that he would be spending the night with their mother. Carol enjoyed his masterful manner and made no attempt to contradict him. Big red flags. Carol remembered their first night together as being incredible. Doug had been considerate in his lovemaking, seeming to genuinely enjoy pleasuring her. His constant whispering of how much he enjoyed her and what a wonderful and intelligent woman she was had been like music to her affection-starved soul, and a far cry from Jack Murray. By morning, she was fully primed for the next round in Doug's game. She awoke to find him looking down at her with a lost expression. Right on cue, Carol insisted that he tell her what was wrong. Reluctantly, he confessed that he was having problems with his landlady and wondered whether he could move some things into her apartment. Of course, this was fine with Carol. As he left, he wondered if he could ask one more thing of her. Could he have her underpants? His explanation that it would help him to remember her while he was away somehow overcame Carol's initial abhorrence, and he made it sound romantic. But when she brought her large cotton underpants to him, he quickly gave them back because they were far too big. She soon got hurt at his rejection as she marveled at her luck in finding such an adorable and handsome man. She hoped he would return to her soon. But Carol's newly burgeoning affair had not quenched her impassioned love for Jack Murray. She continued to send him flowery love letters in which she told him that she was willing to wait for him as she knew that deep down he really loved her. However, 
Further attempts to manipulate him into leaving Jeanette ended with him telling her to leave Valerio Gardens. Reluctantly, she found herself a two-bedroom apartment three miles away in Lamona Avenue. Jack, with Jeanette closely following behind her, moved Carol's furniture into her apartment, then left with a promise that he would call her. And apparently, Carol was very offended that Jeanette followed behind and thought it was an invasion of privacy. Of course, Jack's call never came, although he would drop in to have sex with her as often as three times a week. With each visit, he would let Carol know of some item he needed, which Carol would buy for him. Sometimes he would ask her to lend him money, and as long as he would keep coming, Carol would gladly continue to hand over cash to him. Doug and Jack took an instant dislike to each other when they met at the Little Nashville Club. This delighted Carol as she thought it was because they were jealous. Carol confessed to Doug the abuses she had suffered at the hands of her ex-lover Jack. And when she told him about the safety deposit box that they shared and the gift she'd bought for him, Doug became angry and insisted that she should stop. He attempted to talk her into closing her joint account, but she forgot. By reacting with indignation, Doug had played right into Carol's hands. She was now convinced that Doug cared for her and was a better man than Jack. And and Carol would willingly ignore the fact that Doug did not pay his share of rent or pay for his food. Any resentful thoughts were quickly subdued with the rationalization that her new job as a vocational nurse at Valley Medical Center allowed her to easily afford the extra cost. She would not admit to herself that her relationship with Doug was as one-sided as hers and Jack's had been. He would talk incessantly about himself and showed no interest in anything Carol had to say. Although this had changed dramatically after he had read an article about true love being expressed by the fulfillment of your lover's fantasies. He wanted to explore this idea further, so encouraged Carol to share her deepest fantasies, and he did the same. As they lay in bed in darkness, Doug, with his purring voice, would tell Carol of his most secret fantasies, and Carol would be sure that she had finally found the deeply intimate relationship she'd always wanted. Carol's favorite choice of Doug's fantasies was where he captured a young girl and kept her locked away as a sex slave, although she much preferred herself as a captured slave. Together, Doug and Carol indulged her fascination for bondage and domination. Doug enjoyed testing her seemingly non-existent sexual limits. Before long, the fantasies began to include murder. He told her that it was fun to kill and that any woman who really loved him should be willing to kill for him. And guess what? Carol was more than willing. Doug would pass in and out of Carol's apartment as he first drew close, then withdrew again and disappeared for days at a time. And at this time, he was dating and living with other women as well. With each increase in intensity, Carol, aware that Doug was watching her reactions, would be sure to react positively, even giggling when he told her of a past girlfriend's fascination with necrophilia, where apparently he stood in a freezer and put white makeup on to stimulate a dead body. During a period of Doug's absence, Carol answered an ad in a personal column. Art Pollinger was a stereo company executive with a yearly income of $100,000. He was looking for a decent and marriageable woman, and unlike Jack and Doug, he was not much in the looks department, weighing 400 pounds, nor did he treat Carol badly. He saw her as an intelligent woman and an immaculate housekeeper who he would have liked to marry in the future. Carol soon confided in Art the sexual abuse she had suffered at the hands of Jack Murray and the fact that she had a joint safety deposit box. The next day, he took Carol to the bank to withdraw her money. There was nearly $6,000 missing, and Jack's signature appeared twice on the entry slip. Although Carol was devastated by Jack's deceit, she made no excuses for him to Art. Oh my god, Carol. (laughs) Just, Just no. Finally, at Art's insistence, she took the money out and placed it in a checking account where Jack could no longer get at it. In time, Carol and Art stopped seeing each other. Carol had become too addicted to the emotional roller coaster ride she enjoyed with Jack and Doug to give a healthy relationship a chance to grow. She would later look back and wonder how differently her life would have been if she'd chosen differently. When Carol decided to buy a new car after gaining her driver's license again, Doug chose a 1973 Blue Buick station wagon. It was bigger than any car she had driven, and her lack of peripheral vision made it difficult for her to drive it. But she bought it anyway. One afternoon in April, as Carol attempted to park the Buick, a buck knife fell from the sun visor into her lap. Doug told her that he kept it for protection against strangers. He suggested that for for the same reason she should buy herself a gun. Together on April 24th, Doug selected two guns from a Van Nuys pawn shop. 
they were to be registered in Carol's name, as Doug told her that he had once done time for a robbery. It was a lie, but to Carol it would make him seem even more desirable. Three weeks later, on May 16th, Carol picked up the two guns. They were 25 caliber Raven Automatics, only small guns which to Carol looked like toys, and in fact, that's what they nicknamed them, the toys. With three boxes of ammunition, she and Doug drove to Balboa Park in Encino. While Doug sat in the car and test-fired the guns into a telephone book, Carol stood 25 feet away to see how loud the gunfire sounded. She told Doug that it had been no louder than the pop of a balloon. The picture of Doug with a gun in the back of his jeans caused Carol to see him as a heroic figure, strong and masterful. Carol would cook for him, clean the house, do his laundry and dishes, and even buy him clothes. Apparently, she kept buying him jeans that never fit him, and it really made him mad. Now, Chris, her son, her oldest son, was deeply aware of the changes in his mother. Doug completely dominated her, and she seemed to like it. He screamed at his mother to get Doug out of the house, and she slapped his face. Where she was once protective of her children with the men in her life, now she was the opposite. Both Doug and Carol regularly beat Chris, and Carol told herself that she was only taking the black leather-studded biker belt to Chris to save him from Doug's brutality, but she had done so with as much fervor as Doug had. Carol's willing submission to Doug's demand was complete by the time Doug demonstrated to her how she could kill Chris by sticking a knife in his back right through his heart. Chris stood helplessly as Doug described in graphic detail how he would kill Chris as his mother listened impassively. She did not stand up for her son as he hoped she would. He realized that his mother had chosen Doug over her own children and withdrew emotionally, and he began to cry easily and suffered from headaches. Spike had been terrified as he watched Doug punch his older brother in the kidneys and stomach, one of many incidents that Chris would later be unable to recall, probably from that horrific trauma. Chris had felt for some time that he and Doug were in the battle for his mother, and now he knew that he had lost. Carol had completely lost the last remnants of her self-respect. The more contemptible Doug's treatment of her became, the harder she would work to try to please him. He often called her incompetent and told her she was fat, and when Doug told her he didn't want to have sex with her anymore because she was so unattractive, she was shattered, but still did not end the relationship. Instead, she would go with him when he picked up sex workers and sat in the back seat as women tried unsuccessfully to arouse him. As Doug continued to move in and out of her apartment, he would blame her mood swings and possessiveness as the reasons he had to escape. What Carol did not know was that he'd tried many times to replace Carol but had been unsuccessful in his attempts to attach himself to another woman. The only reason he returned at all was because no one else would be willing to oblige his fantasies as Carol was. He had moved in with a new girlfriend, but she kicked him out after only two days, forcing him to move back to Carol's flat. Through his new girlfriend, he met another girlfriend, one that was large, busted, and overweight. He and the girlfriend went to dinner together a number of times, but she refused to sleep with him. He took her to an orgy at a house in Hollywood, where she sat at the bar until, she was, until he was ready to go, then decided to invite him home to stay. The sight of him in a pair of green silk women's underpants sent her into a fit of laughter, spoiling any plans Doug may have had for making love, although he did spend the night with her. In the morning, he left a gun on her television. Making the excuse that she needed to return his gun, she agreed to see Doug again. Doug was sure that in this new girlfriend he found another meal ticket, but she refused to see him again after he suggested that they should kill her ex-boyfriend together. Doug was far too weird for her liking. In late May, Doug finally succeeded in his quest. He met a new girlfriend named Tammy Spangler at the Viking Bar in North Hollywood. Like Carol, she was unattractive and overweight with low self-esteem and had succumbed to Doug's first night seduction just as Carol had. Doug was soon invited to spend the night and by June 3rd, he moved into her apartment where she lived with her two children. When Carol scraped the side of the Buick while attempting to park it outside her Lamona apartment avenue, Doug was furious, telling her that she was incompetent and a bad driver. At the end of May, Carol decided to buy herself a new car a blue 1976 Datsun 710, although she kept the Buick station wagon for Doug. That night, Doug took the new car for a test drive. In the morning, the gear shift was fractured, and there had been an indentation on the passenger side door panel. He told Carol that he'd been cleaning his gun when it had discharged, ricocheting off the shift in the door. Carol did not believe him. The next day, she applied to have custody of Chris and Spike transferred to their father, Grant Bundy. Grant took the boys and sent them by plane to their paternal grandparents in the Midwest. 
Things hadn't worked out for Doug with his new girlfriend, and he wanted to move back permanently with Carol. As soon as the boys were gone, Carol began looking for a new apartment closer to the Jurgens factory so Doug could walk to work. And we're going to stop there. There's a little cliffhanger. Remember the indentation on the passenger side door panel and the gunshot in the car. So in next week's episode, we're going to get into the murders, but this I think was really important to understand how Carol got to be the way she was and a little bit about Doug's background as well. He's, as I said up top, an absolute garbage piece of trash um, and completely manipulative, a total con man, so disdainful, no respect for women. Um, and Carol will just, it doesn't matter. It's like the worst she's treated. She's She constantly takes pride in knowing that she, you know, will stand by her man regardless. And for something beautiful this week, I've picked Kevin O'Quan's The Sculpting Contour Powder. It's an easy-to-use matte contour powder with a natural finish to enhance, define, and sculpt your face like a pro. It is award-winning, sheer, and matte, which I love. And he was known basically as the king of contouring. I mean, he worked with all the most amazing celebrities and whatnot. And there's one book that he made where he, I think it's called Making Faces, where he would transform celebrities into other celebrities. And it's unbelievable how talented he was. But a lot of that came down to contouring and that concept of shading and highlighting and how you can basically change the look of a face. So um, it combines brown, red, and gray pigments that work together to recreate a really natural shading and and dimension on the face. And as I said, the natural aspect of that, of the powder, and specifically his formula, I think, um, really is what makes it so appealing when you know everyone out there has this like the same sort of instagram looking face where it's just i think a little over the top like i'd prefer something that's sculpted crease proof um but that really doesn't look like you're wearing contour whereas so much of the formulas these days do so highly recommend it you can get it on their website i'd recently bought a new one at um blue mercury and they make three shades it's light medium and deep it's not the cheapest but again when it comes to contouring and i think face makeup you really you know it's it's better to spend a little bit more for that high quality and i will tell you too i mean I I don't know how often you're contouring per se, but like even if you were a pretty regular contour user, like it will last a while. I mean, you don't, you know, little goes a long way. Okay, everybody, that was a long episode, but I was really excited to start telling this story because I think it's really fascinating, uh, depressing, sad, and infuriating at the same time. Um, This was during a time in Los Angeles when there was so much crime. This is right after the apprehension of the Hillside Stranglers. And as we'll cover in the next episode, there just seems to be this insane increase of um, women being dumped around uh, the Los Angeles area. I would love to hear your thoughts, feedback, comments. Feel free to email me at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. You can look us up on Crime and Beauty on Facebook, on Instagram. It's crimeandbeauty.podcast. You can listen on crimeandbeauty.podbean.com, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, all the things. Um, And thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay beautiful. Stay beautiful.